My next guest on the Word of Good podcast is Jason Butler. Jason is a speaker, author, and financial well-being expert. Jason joined the financial services sector in 1990 and is a chartered fellow of both the Chartered Institute for Securities and Investment and the Personal Finance Society. In 1998, Jason founded Bloomsbury Wealth Management and built this to become a highly respected and successful wealth advice boutique. In 2012, Jason was recognised by CityWire as one of the UK's top 100 financial advisors. Jason is a columnist for the Financial Times where he's known as the Wealth Man and writes about personal finance related issues. Jason also provides expert commentary on personal finance to the BBC and Sky as well as other news and media outlets. Through his consultancy, Generation Next, Jason is Head of Financial Education at Salary Finance. Salary Finance is a provider that offers staff avoid high-cost debt through salary-linked repayments. Jason is also the author of a number of books including The Financial Times Guide to Wealth Management, How to Plan, Invest and Protect Your Financial Assets, co-author of Essential Personal Finance, A Practical Guide for Students, Squeezing the Orange, Simple Ways to Live a Full Life, Money Moments, Simple Steps to Financial Wellbeing, and his latest book, Essential Personal Finance, A Practical Guide for Employees, was published in January 2019. It is my great pleasure to have on this podcast, Jason Butler. Good morning, Jason. How are you? Hi, Gethin. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, thank you for coming along. Um, so let's get straight into um, what I wanted to talk to you about today. So I was reading one of your recent articles in the Financial Times, and you write about the importance of rejecting materialism. Um, I'm personally somebody who's very guilty of spending money to make myself feel better. Um, I have an odd collection of items. Um, but when we spend money to make us feel better, it doesn't actually do that, does it? And in fact, it does the opposite. No, that's right. I mean, there's there's loads and loads of research on this, um, but I think most of your listeners, most most people who've been around a, a while, will know instinctively that materialism um, and spending in general is just a quick fix. Um, whether you buy a new car or a new pair of shoes, or you, I don't know, you bought a box set of a DVD of a, a series or something. I mean, yeah, yes, it, it has an effect, but all the research shows that it falls off very quickly, and and that makes sense because essentially. The thing about materialism, and, and even I would include in that going on holidays and posting the the, the the pictures on Instagram, but to a lesser extent, it's because the lesser emotional connection you have with the spending decision, in other words, the 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 half life, if if the emotional benefit you get from spending um, decays quickly then it's not good value for money. So the best things that you can spend your money on are generally experiences or learning things or something that you can share with others or indeed that helps other people but doesn't give you an immediate uh, financial or an immediate emotional payback. So, uh, for instance, I was I was laughing. I wrote about it in one of my books. Um, I was corralled into going to the Queen concert in 1986. Now, I vaguely knew Queen, but I wasn't too bothered about them. Um, and I thought, oh, 15 pounds, that was a lot of money to me. That was a whole working all Saturday. Sure. Um, but they said, no, come on, you know, you'll never get another chance to see Queen like this. So I went along and, of course, it was amazing. 
uh, and, and in addition, there was a, in excess, there was status quo. It was just a brilliant day. Um, and I still, to this day, remember that concert. And when every now and again I put it on the DVD, I turn the surround sound on, it's like I'm there. And I can even see the section of the crowd where I was standing. And I just keep reliving that experience. And so that was an, an example of a good spend. But when I think about stuff I bought over the years, and I'm sure many of your listeners and yourself will agree, you know, I can't remember what I did or didn't buy, um, you know, whether it's still giving any value. You know, it's just it's um, the, the, the benefit is not there. So and, and another reason why people uh, fall into consumptive spending, in other words, spending that is not meaningful or lasting or improving their financial well-being or their general mental well-being, um, is often because there's some, either they've had a trauma in their life that's making them feel, you know, um, sad or somehow um, low, or they didn't have their needs met as a child. And this is the area that I don't see many people speaking about. I mention it in all my keynotes, all my financial wellbeing keynotes. I try to do it in a lighthearted way. But essentially, if your needs for security and love are not met fully and properly and healthily when you're young, then there is a propensity to have what they call extrinsic motivation. You're, you're motivated by the need for validation by others or external events or status or recognition. Now, look, there's nothing wrong with any of those things, you know, in terms of having, you know, drive and wanting to do things well. But when it becomes an unhealthy need for others to see you in a positive light, um, and that's done through spending or through obsessive working, or, you know, climbing the pole to get status, that's when it can really affect your personal financial well-being. Um, I think it's a, it's a really interesting point. And I agree that it's it's something that people aren't really tackling, especially when it comes to workplace financial well-being is lots of the stuff we see is pretty reactionary to people's financial situation um, and not a huge amount is preventative. Um, and kind of what you said there, just kind of the first thing that popped into my head is, you know, anyone listening to this podcast, if they have a think about what they had for Christmas last year, they'll probably struggle to remember what it what you got off each person. Um, and I read some research recently that said, you know, two thirds of young people, so those kind of under the age of 30, are worried about finances uh, on a very regular basis. But the same two thirds also say that the pressure to spend money and to live a lifestyle, or they are confused by uh, what success looks like and the Instagram generation of people who are spending money they haven't got to go on holidays, to buy the right clothes, to fit in. Um, and it kind of, what really sticks in my head is it feels like we've we've dealt with hundreds of years of marketing to make us feel that way. If you buy this deodorant, girls will like you. If you drive this car, people will think you're cool. Um, and so that's obviously a big part of it, isn't it? The, the pressure for us to fit in and just be liked and loved. Um, and we're spending money to try and achieve those things. Mm. Well, here's the thing. It's no one's right to tell anyone what a good life is, okay, and what they should or shouldn't spend their money on. I'm very keen to make that point across all medium that I work in. But what I do say to people is you need to, first of all, be very intentional and when I say intentional, I don't mean don't have spontaneity and don't do things off the cuff. But I mean, you've got to be really intentional about what good does look like to you. Uh, I mean, you're a senior individual at Benefex, right, Kathleen? And you will start out at the beginning of the year as a business with kind of what does good look like so that you can have an idea of where you're going to go. But many people um, approach their life and particularly the role of money in it in a very haphazard kind of let's just let it happen to me, right? So if you if you approach life in terms of you're not clear about the role of money um, in achieving a good life because you don't know what that good life is. You don't really know what good is. You know, you haven't thought about what are the things that make me. I mean, I, I do a classic example. I do this regularly myself and I recommend people uh, do as well. I write down a list of all the things that make me happy. 
Mm. Um, and I, I mark all the ones that don't cost any money or don't cost much, you know, don't have a big impact. And then I compare that with what how I'm actually currently spending my time and whether I need to do more of those things, first of all, that don't cost money. And then if they do cost money or there has an implication, I can think about those in a kind of 12 or 24 month cycle. Do I need to do, do I need to earn more? Do I need to cut some other spending out? Do I need to free up and sell some gear off? So I think being intentional about what a good life is to you, and that will always be changing. You know, it's different for what it is. What a good life for me now is different from what it was 10 years ago and what it was 20 years ago. But also, and the role of money, so that money can be your servant, not your master. That's the trick, I think. And and here's the thing is, I've got two daughters. One's nearly 21 and the other one's coming up to 16. So I, I know what it's all about, the whole Instagram generation, social media. It's not the fact that you have these outside stimuli, and that is an issue. So obviously try to reduce, you can't stop it, but try and reduce the outside stimuli. So if I ever watch commercial television, say I'm watching the, a major football match or something, I always dim the adverts. I always mute the adverts. It's mm. just something I do. It's a standard response. So perhaps I'm odd, but I don't want them telling me that I'm inadequate, that I'm somehow lesser person, or that advert with a car where she doesn't want the dad to drop her off at school, but when he got the brand new car, which is clearly on finance, she's really clear. She's really pleased and really happy. I mean, what a terrible... And I, I told that story to my daughter, my youngest daughter. I said, but isn't that a terrible message? I mean, we couldn't hear the sound because I had it turned off, but I said, you can see what's going on here. So so, so that's it. But the second thing is that you can do to help improve your financial well-being is focus on your self-identity, your values, and as I say, what matters to you. Because the more cool you are in your own skin, as Hikato, the ancient Greek Stoic said, you know, what you ask me what progress have I made? Well, the progress I've made is I've become a friend to myself. And that is the most important thing people need to do. And, and if you take the financial well-being sort of sector or area, and you take reward and HR and the whole um, caring for your staff and benefits and packages, you've got to start with the people who are who are in senior positions in reward and HR and, and, in, and also senior leadership in the firm and actually get them to focus on their own financial well-being first because until they're honest about the role of money and their blind spots and their shortcomings and their taboo issues and their uncomfortableness with it, you can never ever help your workforce because you'll never empathize with them because you're in denial with yourself. A really good point. Completely agree with all of that. I think it's what's really interesting is that that last point about the senior leaders, especially as you mentioned in, in the industry that's kind of been created around financial well-being. You have largely the decision makers, if they're not in HR, they're in reward and benefits. And from my experience, you know, those people are employees themselves. Um, they are struggling with money. They are feeling the pressure to spend, um, struggling to save in the same way that everyone else is. But actually, even though they sit at the top of the kind of, you would expect them to sit at the top of the knowledge tree when it comes to things like workplace benefits, my experience is actually their knowledge is just as bad as everyone else's. Um, and it leads quite nicely onto the, the the next point I wanted to talk to you about was you know one of one of the areas I think of financial well being that doesn't appear to get the attention it deserves is our ability to prevent future poor financial well being. So if you look at the stats around things like it's estimated one in two of us will experience cancer in our lifetime, one in three of us will experience a mental health issue. So they're very real threats that will affect most of us in our lives, um, and you know may, make us spend time away from work um, and lose income. Um, do you think employers should be doing more to encourage the uptake of the benefits that employees can lean on in times of financial difficulty brought on by your health? 
Um, well, I think the whole issue of mental um, ill health or mental fragility or mental resilience, whatever you want to call it, um, is we know is now you know right up the list. We're only just starting to realise that whether it's the cause or the effect that the finances and the role of money in that. Um, is almost like completely linked. You know, it's like accelerator and brake. If you're doing one, if you put, if you're not, you're not dealing with both. It's like putting your, your foot on the accelerator and on the brake. So you cannot deal. You can't have a joined up mental health strategy unless you also have a, a joined up financial wellbeing strategy. And that really is starts with with the dialogue, with the breaking the taboo about look, we're, we're all imperfect. We're not wired to make good decisions. Let's just accept that, okay? So we come from an imperfect position. Some of us have a propensity to save first and spend less and spend afterwards. And some of us have a propensity, uh, a larger amount of people have a propensity to spend first and save what's left. Um, and so therefore, that if we just accept that, and also money's scary. You know, half the UK population don't have functional maths. And so therefore, even at that level, uh, they don't understand percentages. They, they're not comfortable with fractions. They've got, you know, talk about decimal points. It's, it's all frightening for these people. And it's not because they're stupid. And it's not because they don't think it's important. It's because they're frightened. And when people are frightened and when people don't feel safe and when people don't feel secure, they don't make smart decisions. I mean, you know that from experience. I mean, you've been around a long time, right? If people are feeling on the back foot or in a siege mentality, whether that's because they've got um, some sort of mental health issue that started first or a major trauma in their life or they had bad experience about maths or they find it's just scary and overwhelming, then they are not going to be in a good position. And I think you're right. The, the, the whole issue of the benefits culture is that I liken, I liken most reward structures and strategies to I, – I liken it to my wardrobe, okay. right? So I, I have to tell you this because I always like to tell a true story. Um, my wardrobe, every now and again I have a purge. But, you know, when I have the purge of the wardrobe, and I'm not a big spender on clothes, as anyone meets me knows. Um, my wife is the one who buys me clothes. It's terrible, but I'm just terrible. I have no interest. But she, if, if it wasn't for her, I'd look like a, you know, like a, you know, sort of a, a bag person or something. You know, I'd look terrible. So I go every now and again. We have a purge of the wardrobe. And we find there's a handful of things that I love and I use a lot. Okay, then there's some other things I, I like and I use infrequently, but I don't want to get rid of them. And then about half of what I've got off the third is just junk. I don't like it. It's taking up space. Why did I ever buy it? It probably was good at the time, but it's not of use. And I think many benefit structures are if you approach it from the wardrobe analogy, you will find actually it is important to prune and have a look and because your workforce is changing. Um, the economic environment's changing. What people prioritise is changing. And also, more important, as you know from my work with salary finance, is that the product suite and the technology is changing. So you can't think what was what was in place 10 years ago is going to be right for people. Yes, it doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater. And, of course, we know the biggest goal and the biggest problem people have is having enough work money for when they can't or don't want to work, what other people would call retirement. I call it, you know, um, making work optional. You know, that's exciting to me, making work optional. Uh, being retirement, uh, it doesn't sound particularly appealing. So it's not something I'm, I'm getting engaged with. And so I think when it comes to reward structures, you've got to start with, first of all, the reality of where people are now. But also, as you absolutely say, you can be, at, say, let's say there's five levels of well-being, with one being the worst, ten being, you know, at the top. There's lots of people at twos and threes, Okay. But they only need one or two things to slip them back down, as you say, that make them vulnerable. And, and it's because people, when they're making decisions about money, don't want to think about the worst that can happen. 
They don't want to do a kind of yellow hammer, as it were, if I can use that more topical term from the Brexit negotiations. They don't want to look at the worst case scenario. That's not a forecast of what will happen. It's a possible what might happen. And then you can make a decision, do you need to plan for it? So the biggest single problem people have is, one, controlling their spending, keeping their income um, at least at least equal to what's going out. <laughs> and secondly, building a reserve fund so they can cope with the crap that life throws at them. The boiler that goes wrong, the car that breaks down, the child who needs another pair of school sh uh, shoes because they've, they've scraped the top of them playing football or something. You know, I had this with my daughter when she was young. She used to go through shoes like it was no tomorrow, and they were £38 each. Now, if you're on a low income or you're, you, you know, you've had a reduction in income because you started a family, that can be a big expense. So getting people to, at whatever level they are, to see the worst that can happen before they go and buy the tattoo, that they've got to build a, an emergency fund before they have that weekend away they've got to build an emergency fund um and and as i say it's not that people don't know they need to do all this because the salary finance research shows quite clearly that people know the importance of saving they know they need to control their spending but they find it difficult to do this and it's because habits are ingrained and our primeval brain is such that we are always always going to give more weight to rewards here and now than we are something in the long distant future, you know, a, a, a big spending block that we don't know that might happen, or you know how much it might be, or for when we can't or don't want to work. These are things that are in the future, right? So we don't have to deal with them now. We can be in denial, and the simplest way for employers to deal with that is one is to increase the narrative, the ability, the opportunities to share real stories, and that comes from the top. So if you take uh, Asesh Sarkar, who's the CEO of Salary Finance. He is a self-confessed, what we call, uh, coper, which means that he's he's found it very difficult to control his spending, right? He's been very open about this. Um, and he loves my smart spending system when I introduced it, when I joined the firm, because he, he, he can partition his money in a way that doesn't rely on him having apps. He can use those if he wants. It doesn't require him to make massive changes, but it gives him, it gives him some sort of sense of mental separation, a sense of control. Um, it doesn't mean he doesn't go off piste. It doesn't mean that he has blowout months, but it means that he feels he's seen more control. And this is the key thing, Gethin, is that he is making progress, even if it's not perfect. So it's progress, not perfection, and helping people see what could go wrong, and then giving them tools and the and the um, the permission and the social acceptance and peer acceptance that, that this is something you need to think about. And I, th I think that resilience through having money behind you is obviously really important. And I think I completely agree that you look at all the research into the psychology of saving and just kind of starting to save and starting to build up a savings pot is is really important to people and as soon as you start down that route you kind of become quite protective of what you build up um and i think even you know for most employees even just putting kind of 10 pounds a month aside you know within 12 months that 100 pounds is a is a is a start of a buffer so you know if a plumber comes around and it's a 120 pounds call out fee you've started to at least take some of that impact even if they're not saving huge amounts of money um and something you mentioned there as well I wanted to talk about was around, um, you know, the way we kind of talk about money in the workplace. Um, already on this podcast, it's kind of been brought up a couple of times that we should be talking about money at work in the same way that we're starting to talk about mental health. So we remove that stigma attached to mental health because senior people in the business and people who struggled are telling their stories. Um, and I think you raised a really good point that actually imagine if you started having people in your business that put their hands up senior people and said you know actually yeah 15 years ago I was uh, really struggling I was 
writing checks to myself at a cash converters type of organization um and people started to realize that actually you can come out of this stuff there is a way out of it um to start thinking a little bit more positively um about the future um and i think you're absolutely right you know that creating that culture of being comfortable to talk about money um needs to form part of an overall well-being strategy which inexplicably in so many cases i see still does not include financial well-being um even in the last few weeks i've met with um big employers in this country who don't have financial well-being as part of their well-being strategy um and like you say there's a very cyclical relationship between money and mental health um that goes both ways well i've had conversations with senior uh, senior people um in hrm reward as you can appreciate you know whether it's them hiring me in to do big launches and stuff and uh, or writing material for them or creating videos or through my work with salary finance you know because they're obviously covering a lot of employers and millions of staff and you seem to the the, the, the employers that don't think they need to do this it, it seems to be so either some misplaced idea that it's it's not their role to get involved in people's finances okay or they're in denial that there's a problem and I think both of them, that's fine. Carry on with that. That's great. But your competitors are going to be a better place to work. And, you know, getting good people and keeping good people and getting good people to be very, very productive um, is an investment in itself. And it's not about you telling people what to do with their money. It's about making safe spaces to be to leverage the trust that you already have as an employer to help people help themselves. Okay. Because left to their own devices, a bit like uh, we don't force people to go to the gym or eat certain foods, but we we would want to promote things that help people eat healthier, um, uh, avoid destructive um, habits and behaviours, and and do more positive things that help their physical and mental health. So it's about facilitating, it's about raising awareness, it's about making it okay, um, and, and making it socially acceptable, but not telling people. So everyone's always surprised when I do a, a, my financial well-being keynote um, and I've got two or three different versions but they're always surprised because I they're peppered full of stories so I start with a story I tell a story after story and I finish with a story because people don't want to be lectured to they almost want to be inspired enthused encouraged um, sort of feel like yeah I and there's got to be a space in in any kind of communication or dialogue where people feel they can jump in and jump out where they can connect and where they can understand and they can find their own truth from it and i think i think the other problem also is that the people who make the final decision um and we do know from salary finances research that there's equal numbers of people earning over a hundred thousand who are depressed and feeling bad and worried about money as there are people under twenty thousand okay so this idea that income solves it all isn't because lifestyle creep and social comparison and running with the rich people and all that um those people are for various reasons also a large amount of them over a hundred thousand are also very unhappy so it's not income itself doesn't solve it it's the spending control that does but nevertheless senior leadership are often in denial because either they don't have that problem themselves or they're only and it could be just because they're earning so much money and they haven't got time to spend it rather than being really smart right don't assume that because someone's got more money coming in and going out that they can control the spending it's just that perhaps they haven't got the time to spend it but nevertheless they don't see the problem because it may not affect them personally and they're surprised then when they finally they put in a financial well-being program and then find out they've got a take-up of 12 percent for people taking getting rid of high-cost debt by replacing it with salary link loans or um, opening up help to save because they qualify for universal credit, which is the government you know, savings scheme. You know, why would you not do that? 
between £1 to £50 a month, and the government gives you a 50% bonus. You can have access to your money at any time, and there's no risk. Why are, why are the 3.2 million people who qualify for that not having it? You know, when there's only 100,000 accounts opened and half of them have only put a pound in. So, so there, is, there is definitely an issue with leadership. that You've got to step up or you are going to become not the employer of choice. And, and here's the thing, even if it's not about helping the staff, your staff be the best version of them when it comes to their finances, is a moral issue here. Um, you know, when I, do, when I do talks, I'm thinking to myself, there might be, I did one the other day, it was 380 people in the room. Okay, these are the people that, you know, repair holes in the road and, and uh, you know, in a, a water mains break. And they, so they're quite a skilled job because they've got to make sure they don't go through uh, electricity pylons and so on. And I'm slotted into a 20-minute sl- s- section in between their health and safety briefing and how well or not they're doing and next year's targets for how they can improve their workflow. So I've got a 20-minute slot, 380 of these people who probably haven't asked for me to be there. But at the end of it, we know that they're laughing, they go out to their tea break talking about money. There's the reward and benefit people there. They start to have a bit of a, there's a, there's a, it's a safe way of raising the issue because I do it in a humorous way and I've just raised the issue and I've hit the nail in 20 minutes on the head on the four or five key things, but without making people feel like they're having a lecture. But that is about starting the conversation. And then they can engage with video content or comms that come through on whatever your benefit thing is. And that is a great thing to see because it's the first time that they've actually had that that conversation raised in a way that's not not a boring lecture about ISIS or why you should join the pension scheme. <laughs> you know, I, I say, hands up here, who wants to make work optional? <laughs> Everyone puts their hands up. If I said, who would like a lecture about how the pension scheme works? You wouldn't get anyone. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. I think, um, yeah, a few points there. I think it's something I read recently, YouGov research said that 80% of decision makers in HR and reward don't know the difference between financial education and regulated financial advice and the report was suggesting that's leading to inaction so actually because they are exactly as you've said they're worried about being too paternalistic they're worried about crossing the line between education and regulated financial advice so actually that's leading to a lot of inaction um but when we did our research with king's college london overwhelmingly when we asked hr directors did they need to prove return on investment? Why did they want to look at financial well-being? Overwhelmingly, the response was because it was the right thing to do. Um, now I think that is there's a there's a big chasm between wanting to do the right thing and then getting signed off to actually develop a strategy or or the resource or the the money to be able to do that. Um, and I think the other thing you mentioned that was um, really interesting is the telling stories piece. Um, you know, I think since the dawn of since man could start talking, people have loved hearing stories, and I think that brings really boring and um, complex subjects to life a little bit um, and I think one of the great examples of you know income protection I think is a hugely misunderstood product I think it can be beneficial to lots of people based on you know some of the facts we shared earlier on about people's likelihood of getting cancer and mental health issues um, you know there's uh, somebody I used to know a long time ago um, had a really good income poli- income protection policy they took out through work two years later they got diagnosed with a muscle wasted disease and didn't work for the next kind of seven years. And the policy continued to pay out for the whole of that period uh, and possibly more um, after I stopped speaking to them. Um, and I think at the moment, LV is saying that they've got a policy that's been paying out for about 32 years. And so it's actually unlike any other insurance in the fact that it's not just a one-off payment. This is kind of a continually thing that could be cropping and popping somebody up for quite a significant amount of time uh, whilst they're dealing with whatever real health or struggles they're facing. 
Um, so just on to um, the last thing I wanted to discuss with you. Um, if anyone listening to this podcast was to Google money help, they'd be inundated with paid for advertisements, a full page of Google just to do with debt. But debt, obviously, and we've touched upon this already, isn't the be-all and end-all of financial well-being, is it? Um, otherwise, the absence of debt alone would make people wealthier and happier. But as we see, that's not the case. Um, so what really is the most important aspect of financial well-being, um, in your opinion? Well, I think the most important aspect about well-being is, is understanding, really, that money is the servant, not the master. And I think it goes right really back to what I was saying is that it's it's accepting that that you probably as an employer and an HR award person, you've probably got lots of stuff in that wardrobe, okay? Mm. Right. But a lot of it isn't really relevant. Um, but the bits that are relevant, the things that have the higher impact are the things that you need to be focusing on. But you need to be focusing on on promoting them and the discussion, but around a narrative, around a story-based situation. So if, for instance, um, if you think about your workforce, if your workforce's biggest problem is balancing their spending, then focusing on things that help them control spending is probably going to be more important than keep banging on about joining the pension or or buying insurance or, I don't know, the save-as-you-earn scheme, okay? And the, the simple most important thing I think you have to do is you have to take the, a pulse test of your staff so there are different ways of doing this. There are free tools. There are paid-for tools. There are tools from people like Salary Finance and others who, who will give you a very simple um, assessment um, tool that you can ask staff to do. And even if, you, even if you've got 20% of staff doing it, it will give you an understanding of what it is people are looking for, what areas they think they want help from. And so the recent um, Employer's Guide to um, uh, financial well-being from salary finance actually indicated uh, we you know we do go across the country was that the number one thing people wanted help with it from their employer was getting out of debt and that was across obviously it was highest in the lowest financial well-being scores but it, it, it was it was the very very if you aggregated all the different levels of well-being it was the number one thing people wanted help with the second thing they wanted help with was help help saving that was really important to, them, to, to just try and have the discipline of take the money off me first, you know, put it somewhere, anywhere except for my bank account. Um, and then the third thing, and this has really, really surprised me, was they want help with general financial planning and setting goals and kind of seeing things in context so that they're, that they're short-term decisions, that they can understand the implications of that. And you're starting to see services now that provide this, you know, helping people build a very simple plan, you know, over the online or with a, a call center or something where it's not advice as such, but it's just general kind of like money coaching, virtual money coaching, that kind of thing. So I think it's a case of not focusing, a bit like a builder, don't focus on all the materials that are sitting in the yard. Stand back and think, what house are you trying to build? Okay, and what can you afford to do? And most firms are already doing really good things. It often is a case of just let's see what people are saying. Let's see what works elsewhere. Let's look at some case studies. Let's look at what we're already doing. And let's look at what we might be able to do in stages over three or four years. So I think the single most important thing that firms can do is get senior leadership to accept that financial well-being and mental well-being are one and the same. And to be focusing on one to the exclusion of the other, or certainly not supporting the other in the same vein, is a fool's errand. But you don't have to spend lots of money and you do not have to spend loads of time. What you have to do is go back to what I said before. It's small steps of progress not perfection. You might try doing a few workshops or you might try and do some focus groups or you might try and do a, a well-being keynote. Um, 
you know, I did one the other day where they were they they launched the financial wellbeing thing about eighteen months ago. Uh, they got their own portal. They got brought all their own information together, and they've got no real traction. So one of the things we suggested to do was, well, okay, let's go and do a keynote relaunch. So we did a keynote relaunch, which was we got a live audience for 160 people, um, and they loved it. But most importantly, the employer filmed it, and the employer is now cutting the keynote down into lots of little vignettes of videos, and they can keep using that. And then, in, in addition to that, we identified different guides that they might want to push out to people or promote to people at different times. So there was one about how to handle a pay rise. Now, you might think, well, what does that mean? Well, handling a pay rise, people don't think intentionally, hang on a minute, should I be actually putting some of this future, this pay rise that I've got coming into the future, me, as opposed to just buying a bigger house or spending more money now? So having a guide or a piece of material that can, can be done at a key point that the employer knows about, that can help them. It's not costing them any money. It's not taking lots of time. It's about standing back and thinking, what could we do to raise awareness and to give people a little nudge now and again as part of that general awareness. So that's just an example. Um, but other firms are already doing good things. They just need to do more of it. Excellent. And um, just as we come to the end of this podcast, one final question I wanted to ask you. Um, it sounds like you're pretty good at controlling your spending, as I'd expect, I guess. Um, what's the best financial well-being you think you've ever made for you personally? Uh, action or decision, you mean? Uh, either or so kind of what what do you think in your history you think uh, a decision that yeah you yeah made? um um so let's just be clear i put the o into overdraft i had more credit cards than i think anyone in the world would have had when i'm in my early 20s i earned a lot of money but i couldn't half spend it so no one needs to tell me what it's like looking down the barrel of a financial gun no one needs to tell me what it's like to not know where the next penny's coming from or how you're going to get yourself out of the poo that you've got yourself into so i know what it's like to be out of control so please don't think I'm Mr. Puritanical or I know all the answers. So it was hard graft. The single biggest thing I think that improved my financial well-being was actually about five years ago when I sat down and I said to myself, what do I really, really want out of life? And what is the role of money in achieving it? And I decided I didn't want big swanky cars. I didn't want second homes. I didn't want the latest this, that and the other. None of that really mattered to me. Um, I love playing the piano. I've got a piano I bought years ago. Uh, it was a big expense for me at the time. Uh, sitting down and playing the piano makes me happy. Going for a run makes me happy. Sitting down and just, I don't know, watching a movie with my wife makes me happy. Um, going to watch my daughter play netball makes me happy. None of these things really cost a lot of money. And I suppose it was just that standing back and saying, what is the role of money? And don't get me wrong, four years ago, before I'd, uh, five years ago, before I'd sold my business, so I still had a mortgage at the time. I still had expenses. I was actually paying school fees as well. You know, I had all the expenses going out. But I just thought, you know what? I, I'm going to change my life. I don't want to be a financial advisor, making rich people richer. So I sold my business. Um, I took a year out and I, I completely reconfigured my life. So now I spend less money now than I have ever spent in my whole life through choice. Um, and I've never been happier. Does it mean I get down days? Yes, of course it does. Does it mean sometimes things don't go right? Yes, of course they do. Um, but am I, am I able to cope with what life can throw at me? Yes. And am I being intentional about the things that matter to me? Yes. And, and in fact, one of those things, uh, I took it to the extreme, is that, that I decided that having drunk alcohol for 30 years and never, couldn't remember a week when I hadn't had a drink, and I mean, not a heavy drinker, but, you know, a week when I hadn't actually had alcohol in it. I thought, you know what? I don't think I want this. This is a habit I don't need. So I, I pretty much 
cut alcohol out my whole life, but I'm not teetotal. Every now and again, I have a, a drink with mates or a couple of glasses of wine or a beer, but I don't drink habitually because that's not serving me and it doesn't make me happy. So that's an example of, of um, again, 30-year habit. I decided what was important. I made the change. And it has a, the benefit of not just being good for my health, but it's also helped my bank balance. <laughs> Excellent. So our listeners can find out more about Jason and contact him through jason-butler.com. All of the books we mentioned in the introduction um, can be bought on uh, online and we'll provide details in the, the show notes. Jason Butler, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks, Kathy. Join the workplace wellbeing discussion online by tweeting your thoughts and questions to at World of Good Book. Thank you to my guest today, and thank you for listening. <laughs>